This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'd like for us to begin with a passage from Matthew chapter 16. This is Matthew 16, 13 to 15. When Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks and praise that you have given us Jesus. We ask you now, by the power of his Holy Spirit, that we may confess him to be your son. We make this prayer in his name, for he lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This lecture is entitled, And Who Do You Say That I Am? The Person of Christ is Understood by the Greek Fathers. The passage that I read to you from Matthew 16 stands at the very center of the gospel, and Jesus has his disciples gathered around him, and he asks them two questions. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they give various responses. All of them are wrong. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? We know Simon Peter then is inspired by the Heavenly Father to profess Jesus as the Son of the living God, that he is the Anointed One, the Messiah. And then Simon is renamed Peter, and he is uh, then established as the rock of the church. It is interesting that when you think about our faith in Jesus, it changes us. So that when we profess who Jesus is, we then are incorporated into him. We then really can become Christian, anointed with his Holy Spirit, and being found in his church, united in his body. Today's lecture is precisely in terms of the person of Christ as understood by the Greek fathers. And so I want us to see how these people were changed, that they continued the faith that Simon Peter professed, and they were changed. And so before we get to how they think about Jesus, I want us to think about them. Who are the Greek fathers? Well, one way of just thinking about the fathers in general is through a mnemonic device, which is AHO, the letter A, and then H-O-E, AHO. And because you have four different qualities that would constitute the fathers of the church. The four qualities are A, for antiquity, H, for holiness of life, O, for orthodox teaching, and E, for ecclesiastical approval. So that the church has had this custom of calling certain Christians fathers of the church, and for them to be qualified as fathers, they, in a sense, meet those four criteria, antiquity, holiness of life, orthodox teaching, and ecclesiastical approval. The lecture, though, is not just simply about the fathers in general, but I was asked to talk about especially the Greek fathers. And here, I'd like for us to consider how the, those that we call Greek fathers would actually be puzzled by that name. Why? Because Greek, for those fathers of the church, would usually mean pagan or Gentile. A lot of people don't realize this. Uh, so this follows St. Paul's use of Greek or Jew. Okay, so 
that Greek then is understood to be pagan. St. Athanasius of Alexandria, who died in 373, he has an early work that in Latin is called the Contragentes, but he didn't write in Latin. He wrote in Greek. And so what, what was his original title? It is Katahelenon, against the Greeks. So this is where if you're reading someone like St. Athanasius and you're reading a Greek father in Greek, when the word Greek comes up, you know, uh, the literal would be like a Hellene, um, that means a Gentile. So, uh, so St. Athanasius's text, Katahelenon, in Latin, Contragentes, in English is usually translated as against the heathen or against the pagans. It's the earlier work that's the companion, com, companion piece to the later work that's more famous on the Incarnation. Now, the Greek fathers are many, okay? I don't think anybody could just name, well, here are the Greek fathers. And so people don't know even the, the number of the Greek fathers in general. October 17th is the feast day of St. Ignatius of Antioch. And I thought it'd be nice to begin with him because he's one of the first Greek fathers, one of the first fathers writing in Greek. He lived in the late first and early second centuries. And he responds to Jesus's question, who do you say that I am? With seven letters, so to speak, and his life. He died a martyr in Rome. Okay, he's called the God-bearer. And Ignatius of Antioch in the letters allows us to see his really lively faith in Jesus, that he longs to be a true disciple of Jesus, to give his whole life over for Jesus. I have a little selection here from the first of the seven letters, and it's his letter to the Ephesians. You can consider how his letter to the Ephesians was just written a few decades after the letter to the Ephesians that we find in our New Testament. And it's fascinating to make connections between the two letters. Well, this particular passage that I want us to, to begin with is in that first letter from this early Greek father. And what St. Ignatius does is that he emphasizes our Lord Jesus's uniqueness, his oneness, and also there is a parallelism about a two-ness, okay? So I want first simply to read the Greek and then to have the English translation. There is one physician. Fleshly and also spiritual. Generate and ingenerate. In Sarki Ganamenos Theos, in flesh God having become, or God having become in flesh. In Thanato Zoe Alethine, in death, true life. Kayak Marios Kayak Theu, both from Mary and from God. Proton Pathetos Kaitota Apathis, first passable and then impassable. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how St. Ignatius then sets this up, where, first of all, Jesus is given a title that you could call soteriological, that Jesus is called the one physician, okay? There is one physician because he heals us. 
St. Ignatius, in the letter to the Ephesians, talks especially about the healing of Jesus found in the Eucharist, and he calls the Eucharist the medicine of immortality. Jesus is both physician and medicine, bringing us to everlasting life. But between the first line, there's one physician, and the last line, Jesus Christ our Lord, you have this parallelism and that you see how the first term in the Greek, not always in an English translation, but the first term in the Greek emphasizes more Jesus's humanity, the earthliness. And then the second term emphasizes more his divinity, his heavenliness. So that's why I put uh, this out there in terms of thinking about the, the Greek and that there's a lovely parallelism, but Jesus is one, one physician, Jesus Christ our Lord. Right now, it is very important to go through the individual Greek fathers in terms of to be able to appreciate how each one is a disciple of Jesus and called in a special way to profess faith in Christ. All of them are continuing the faith of Simon Peter, but they do this in particular ways for particular needs. We can think about how we profess our faith in Jesus, that we want to continue the apostolic faith, you know, that we have a creed and that we want to profess that creed. On Sundays and solemnities, Catholics recite what's called the Nicena Cosmopolitan Creed. So at the Council of Nicaea in 325 and the Council of Constantinople I in 381, a creed was developed. And so we profess that. Okay, so the Greek fathers of Nicaea and Constantinople contribute to how we profess our faith in the Trinity. And that within that middle section, then, particularly about Jesus, who he is, that he is consubstantial with the Father, and we think about his mysteries, and then uh, so between the Father and the Son. Now, we're not able to go through each one of the Greek fathers in this lecture, okay? And I'd welcome in terms of questions about particular Greek fathers and, and how each one is distinctive in that providential place of professing faith in Jesus. Uh, I mentioned St. Athanasius. St. Athanasius, uh, who, uh, who was such a great defender of the Council of Nicaea during the, the middle of the fourth century uh, and before his death in 373, that he wanted people to, to uh, profess the faith of Nicaea. Uh, he called his opponents Ariomaniacs, that uh, he really did not like Arius's teaching that the son uh, was from nothing, uh, so as created, and that, this, that there was once when the son was not. Okay, so, so Athanasius is a, such a great defender of Jesus's divinity. Uh, I specialized in St. Gregory of Nazianzus, and St. Gregory has a, a lot of language concerning mixing and blending. And later people uh, get worried about the mixture and the blending language. But for Gregory of Nazianzus, that is something very important in terms of how Jesus is, is precisely a blending of divinity and humanity that allows us to see um, the unity of Christ and how we are taken up into that unity. Okay, or St. Cyril of Alexandria, who is especially uh, helpful for the church at the Council of Ephesus, so the Third Ecumenical Council in 431, 
and the way that he defeats Nestorianism. You can go one from one to one and to be able to appreciate them. If you want to have a good overview of patristic Christology, I most highly recommend Father Brian Daly's God Visible, Patristic Christology Reconsidered. It's from Oxford University Press in 2018. Father Daly wrote this book after many decades of reflecting about the mystery of Christ with the fathers of the church. And it's just a really stellar book. And at the end of it, he has an epilogue where he wants to give, well, he says, it might be helpful at the conclusion of this narrative of early Christian understandings of Christ to offer a few general reflections on what I have called the long tradition of Christology. Okay, so I think these, uh, these reflections are priceless. He gives six of them. So I'd like to borrow from Father Brian Daly at this point, and then I will give his principle and then just make a few comments. So Father Daly says, first, Christology is about God. Father Daly continues, the developing early Christian tradition articulating an understanding of Christ is really a way of understanding the distinctively Christian understanding of God, my commentary. That is so good. Christology is about God. All right, so let's just think about it. This is meant to be something of theology, which means study of God. Nobody said the word Christology until Lutheran scholastics in the 17th century. Okay, so nobody in the patristic era, nobody in the Middle Ages talked about Christology. Okay, it's an invention of Lutheran scholasticism. So this is especially now what we call that area of theology about how God has come to us, that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of the Father who is made flesh for us in the womb of the Virgin Mary, who suffered, died, and rose for us, and is giving us the Holy Spirit. And that you really cannot profess faith in Jesus if you don't understand that he's the Son of the living God. And he is the Christ, the Messiah, because he and his humanity is anointed with the Holy Spirit. This is about God, and God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So do you see how if you divide this up and say, oh, well, I'm just studying Christology. I, I'm not concerned about pneumatology. Or I, you know, it doesn't make any sense. It's about theology, a Christian understanding of who God is. And God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we cannot profess right faith in Jesus if we somehow bracket out the Father and the Holy Spirit. Okay, all Christology is Trinitarian, okay, because it's about God. Second one, Father Daly, Father Daly writes, it is about the world and its relationship to God. Father Daly continues, in conceiving Christ as a single divine person, living out in the two utterly distinct natures of divinity and humanity, the creative saving will of God, patristic theology gradually came to understand more deeply the way in which God is present to creation, present as other, as perfect, as in no way lessening or compromising his own transcendent power and holiness, yet present also completely, personifying what is to be son of God in a complete human body and mind and a full human life. Okay, my commentary. It is about the world and its relationship to God. So that when you think about Jesus, he really is taking up a complete human nature. Like us in all things but sin, the Council of Chalcedon quotes the letter to the Hebrews in order to emphasize that Jesus Christ 
is like us in all things except sin. And that then that he has a complete human nature in terms of a real flesh and a rational soul. Okay, so St. Gregory of Nazianza, St. Gregory of Nyssa, uh, so many fathers of the church combat against Apollinarianism because it denied that Jesus had a rational soul, a human rational soul. And this is where in terms of our relationship to God, the world's relationship to God, well, what's really chief within the world here on this earth that God has created? The human being made to God's image and likeness, and that we can think and that we can love God, that we can know something of who God is and we can love him. And that's precisely in terms of being human. Okay, so that so to be able to see how that Jesus, when we approach the mystery of Christ with the fathers of the church, that we come to understand something of the world and most particularly of our human nature. Third, Father Daly writes, metaphysical categories are always used analogously of God and humanity. Father Daly explains, another perhaps deeper reason for the gradual disappearance of the zero-sum conception of the two realities in Christ among later patristic authors is their apparently growing realization, never fully articulated, that the characteristics we ascribe to God's nature are not such as to compete with similar characteristics ascribed to ourselves. Now, from a Thomistic point of view, this is just what you find in pre, uh, so the Summa of Theology, Prima Pars, Question 13, Article 5, that there is no such thing as a univocal speech between God and creation, that it is impossible to use the same term in the same way when we speak about God and that which is not God. Now, think about Christology. We have the phrase two natures. <gasps> it would be impossible to use the nature exactly in the same way. It is not a univocal term. When we talk about God's in, like, in Greek, physis and our physis, not the same meaning. It's an analogous meaning. It's related. Okay, so in terms of hypostasis, prosopon, all of these Greek terms, when we speak of the Trinity, or when we speak of Christ, you know, when we speak of ourselves, we just think if it's divine and it's human, you cannot use the same term in the same way, right? So uh, in terms of the seventh century monothelic controversy, that Christ has two wills. Well, we use the same word will in terms of the divine and the human, but that term will cannot be used univocally, okay? Because why? We're talking about God. A lot of people will study Christological debates and they don't get this third principle from Father Daly and they fall into a mistake, which is one of the most basic mistakes in theology. That as if we could talk about God in the same way that we talk about apples and trees and squirrels and, you know, human beings. Fourth principle from Father Daly, the incarnation is a mode of the Son of God's divine being. Father Daly begins his explanation. As we've mentioned, Maximus the Confessor several times resorts to adverbs to denote the exchange of properties brought about by the incarnation of the word. In Jesus, the word made flesh, 
we encounter God living in a human way as well as a man existing in a divine way. So this is where, and now my my own explanation of this, uh, that the incarnation then allows us to see how the Son of God lives in a manner that is authentically human, okay? And that, that the man Jesus is living in a way that's authentically divine, right? So this is where in terms of just to be able to see Jesus is God, and he, does, and he lives as God in a human way. And he is man, okay? And he's man in a divine way. So to be able to see uh, this, this manner of living. The fifth principle from Father Daly, Christ himself is the beginning of salvation. Father Daly continues, like the history of Israel as God's people, the Christian story is a story of salvation. Later, Father Daly writes, what we call Christology begins in the recognition of Jesus, specifically of the risen Jesus, as the divine Savior. Jesus is, my commentary now, Jesus is the new Adam. And so when you look at him, he is the beginning of our salvation. He is recapitulating the human race. Pope Francis announced that he's going to declare St. Irenaeus, a second century Greek father, as a doctor of the church. So we'll have him as our 37th doctor of the church. St. Irenaeus loved this idea of recapitulation, of how in Christ we find the unity of the human race, and so that we find our salvation in him, who was born of the Virgin Mary, the new Eve, for our salvation. The sixth principle from Father Daly Christ the mystery. Father Daly explains in various ways, and then what I've done is I've given the conclusion to his book here in the sixth principle. Father Daly writes, Jesus Christ in his own person is the realization of God's plan for straying humanity since the beginning. And the point of that plan is the inclusion of humanity, the reciprocal replacement of humanity in Christ and Christ in humanity through and in the community of disciples in the assumed shape of Christ's own life, a life darkened now also by suffering as his was, but pointed towards, his, towards resurrection, towards what the fathers of East and West call divinization, and so towards a growing participation in the same mystery. The saving reality of Christ is God made present in our midst, God with us. It is God visible, our brother. My commentary, Christ the mystery. Father Daly wants us to be able to think about the mystery with a capital M and that we are incorporated into this, that God offers us divinization, deification, that the spirit of Christ is uniting us in Christ, changing us, lifting us up from our human nature to participate in the divine nature. And it's because of God visible, Jesus Christ, our brother, that as I as a Christmas Eucharistic preface says, that, um, that we're lifted up to things invisible through this. All right, now Father Daly has very much inspired my own thinking about Greek patristic Christology. I studied under him for my doctorate. And one of the things that he specializes in is sixth century, so it's post-Chalcedonian Christological reflection, and he edited all of the works of Leontius of Byzantium, who was a strict Chalcedonian in the 6th century. So he was defending Chalcedon. 
And Leontius then can be seen as a contemporary to in the Boethius in the Latin West. And there are all sorts of scholastizations happening because people want to know, well, what terms are these? Okay. And Father Daly has uh, various studies where he goes back to this idea of scholastization. And he sees this, say, even in the debates during Seal of Alexandria's left lifetime. What I've done is I've written an essay that even goes more broadly into this idea of scholastization. And I want to share with you some of the things that I find are important for scholastic thinking in Greek patristic thought. Right. So if you're interested in this, it's an essay titled Scripture and the Christological Controversies in the Oxford Handbook of Early Christian Biblical Interpretation, published in 2019. In, a volume, in this volume edited by Paul Blowers and Peter Martins. Now, an objection could immediately be given to this. Greek patristic Christology? Scholastic? Are you out of your mind? Okay, well, let's take an objection from Vladimir Lossky. He is one of the most influential 20th century Orthodox thinkers uh, uh, about this. And Lossky says this, has never entered into alliance with philosophy in any attempt at a doctrinal synthesis. Despite all its richness, the religious thought of the East has never had a scholastic has never had a scholasticism. The religious thought of the East has never had a scholasticism. Okay, I respectfully disagree with Lossky. If you read Leontius of Byzantium, it's hard to come away from that and not think scholastic. Okay, but what does scholastic mean? What I've done is I've actually gone to an Indo-Tibetan Buddhist scholar who specializes in scholasticism among various world religions and philosophies. So this is where, in terms of just thinking about when, when people look at philosophies, what counts as scholastics? Uh, I recommend Jose Ignacio Cabezón who gives a list of characteristics of scholastic thinking uh, that can be, be applied very broadly. So he writes that these are the different markers of scholastic thinking. A strong sense of tradition, a concern with language, prolifer proliferativity, meaning a textual or analytical inclusivity reconciling inconsistent texts, completeness and compactness, epistemological accessibility of the world, systematicity and ordering and exposition, commitment to reasoned argument and non-contradiction, and the self-reflexivity of critically analyzing first-order practices. Similarly, Paul Griffiths identifies a number of key features in scholasticism across time, space, and intellectual milieu, such as a canon of authoritative writings, an index of prohibited writings, a community with identifiable characteristics and a tradition that has passed on and developed through generations. Such a breadth in thinking about the scholastic can take us out of focusing on a particularly Western trajectory made most prominent in the high Middle Ages. Okay, so what my argument is that don't think of scholastic simply as a 12th and 13th century Latin university phenomenon. That again, Buddhist scholars will use scholasticism it has nothing to do with 13th century Western universities. Rather, it has these different qualities. And what you find, I think, I argue, is in the early church that the Greek fathers 
precisely in reflecting upon Jesus's identity with the help of sacred scriptures, they become increasingly scholastic. And what I've done in this essay is develop 10 markers where you don't find them all at the beginning, but gradually that you have the sense of an increasing scholasticization. So here are my 10 markers. The first one is philosophizing the subject. Use of classical philosophical traditions to theorize the scriptural accounts of the mystery of the one Jesus Christ as both divine and human in consideration of the subject of his actions, especially his suffering, death, and resurrection, with the undergirding principle that human salvation depends on Christ's composition. There's a lot there. All right, so this is where, in terms of to, um, that Jesus comes to us who are humans, and we think. And we apply, in different ways, our thinking processes to the mystery that comes to us. And what was very important for the Greek fathers is to affirm who Jesus is in himself, you know, his, his very person, as basically um, summing up all of our salvation. Okay, that, that really is the incarnation is expressing the economy of God, how God loves us, the, the great philanthropia, the loving kindness of God for us. All right, and that that you need to get Jesus right uh, and, and that you have help from, from different words and thinking to be able to express the, the mystery well. Second one, scriptural rules. Appeals to an authoritative rule of faith and to individual verses as guides to the totality of scriptural exegesis and as sources for answering subtle questions asked of the scriptural text, often in second order genres, more removed from the text than biblical commentaries and homilies. Okay, so this is where, um, you know, uh, that you have gradually the fathers of the church, not just commenting on scripture, say in scriptural commentaries or preaching, but in commentaries on commentaries. To give you an example, St. Cyril of Alexandria has in his third letter to Nestorius a list of 12 anathemas at the end. Well, after he wrote them, he was challenged. So what did he do? He wrote a commentary on his 12 anathemas. Okay, and the 12 anathemas are expressing what he reads in sacred scripture. Do you see how it's second order or third order? And so that there's a scholasticization that is involved here. Third tradition claims that an exegetical position follows necessarily from the scriptures and the fathers or written and unwritten traditions together in a harmony or royal way signing teachers from the fathers for their authority. By the time you get to the seventh century, you don't have as many claims as simply according to the scriptures. You could just hear according to the fathers. Why? Because the fathers are teaching the scriptures. So that it's not as if it's an, uh, something as a counter to the scripture, but the fathers faithfully communicate what the scriptures mean. Fourth, anathematizing. Okay, and, and keep in mind that St. Paul uses the language of anathema, such as in Galatians chapter 1. Okay, so in terms of if someone, if even an angel from heaven were to preach a gospel other than the one I preach, let that one be accursed or more literally anathema, anathematized. Okay, so anathematizing arguments against past, present, or imagined adversaries whose opposition is reduced by a logical display to an absurdity and prior heresy often condemned by anathemas. 
right? So if we're, so in terms of the Greek fathers, that as they progress and they see some, an error in someone that they're in dialogue with at that time, they link it back to an earlier error that was condemned. So in terms of the importance of anathematizing, it's a scholastic way of, of showing this is out of bounds. Okay. Fifth one, Trinitarian mirroring. Reciprocity with the Trinitarian mysteries, so that the debates on who and what Christ is and is not follow upon the right identification of the Trinity as the ultimate and central mystery of Christian faith, and that the terms used in the Christological controversies continue to sharpen the precision of saying who and what the Trinity is and is not. Okay, what does this mean? Well, think about how in the Trinity, we emphasize a oneness and a multiplicity. In the Trinity, three. One and three, right? Well, in Christ, we emphasize a multiplicity, two, and a oneness, one. So what happened was that we developed language, or the Greek fathers developed language. So in terms of, say, the, the word, Greek word for nature, fusis, that God, one fusis, but multiple hypostases, subjects, three. Whereas Christ, uh, one hypostasis, but multiple fusis, so the fuses of being human and divine. So that way you have a Trinitarian mirroring with Christ. You see this as a beginning way in Gregor Nazianzus' Epistle 101 to Cladonius, where he plays with the endings of words in terms of masculine and neuter. Okay, so alos kai alos, ala kai alo. So in terms of uh, that one, you see, um, in English it's very difficult to convey this because what, he's, what sometimes people translate as one person and another or one thing and another. But he can just do it with masculine and neuter. And he doesn't talk about person or nature. It's just simply uh, the same term, but with masculine or neuter endings. All right, so that's Trinitarian mirroring. Sixth, Catholicity. Theological connections with all the mysteries of the faith intimated in the scriptures, most especially the Trinity, but more broadly with all creation, the sacraments, and the Christian way of living, and a systematic presentation of biblical teaching. So here's that sense that all these things hang together, that in terms of Jesus, professing faith in him actually allows you to profess faith in all the things that have been revealed by God. Okay, so in terms of the Trinity, down to everything in terms of creation, in terms of the church, the sacraments, it's all connected. The Greek fathers did not say, okay, we're going to go to Trinity class, and then Christology, and then sacramental theology. Later, we'll go have you know, our course on grace. They didn't do that, okay? Um, they saw that all of this was hanging together, and to get Jesus right was to get everything right. Uh, and you needed, you needed everything to, to come together. Seven, orthodox culture. Use of Christological exegesis to support a solid knowledge of Christian doctrine within a very broad temporal, spatial, ecclesial culture, such as is represented by ecumenical councils. When was the first ecumenical council? 325. Okay, so you had centuries, and this is why I have this idea of a gradual scholasticization, and that um, by the time that you get into the 5th century, it's very important that everybody follows Nicaea, the faith of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed, 325, and then 381, Constantinople. Okay, then Ephesus in, in 431. 
So it's this idea that you need to link in terms of time and space in an orthodox culture. So when you have people meet at Ephesus in 449, uh, claiming to be the ecumenical council, they are citing Nicaea, Constantinople 1, and Ephesus 1. Okay, It's just that the 449 council did not turn out to be an ecumenical council. Pope Leo the Great called it the robber synod, a synod full of robbers. Okay, and so that's why we have Chalcedon in 451. Eighth, terminological invention. Terms such as Trinity, theology, and incarnation rarely are not found in the Bible, gradually acquiring a fixed meaning as technical terms for protecting and proclaiming the biblical revelation and redescribing the more ambiguous use of such terms in earlier scriptural commentaries by fathers. Okay, so this is where, in terms of just the inventions of terms, uh, in the Greek fathers, Theophilus of Antioch in the second century is the first one to say trios, okay, three, okay, so, and then later, by the way, in the West, for Latin, Tertullian says trinitas, all right, but, but just in terms of more and more terminological invention. The ninth one of ten is in terms of the various watchwords and stock phrases, there are indicators of the community's interpretation to be extolled or denied. Okay, so that you have little terms that you need to say it well, okay? Uh, because if you don't say it, then it's like, well, is, is this, are you with us or not? Okay, so theotokos. Okay, do you profess that Mary's mother of God or not? Uh, if you don't, uh, then you would fall into Nestorianism. Okay, so that, that happens. Uh, that's the first of St. Gregory Nazianus' ten anathemas in this Epistle 101 to Cladonius. But then Cyril of Alexandria really takes this up, and it becomes the hallmark of, of Christological profession of the Greek fathers. Okay, or one and the same. Is Jesus one and the same, God and man? You know, or do you think that he's two? You know, we need to profess that he's one, one and the same to deny that he's two sons, okay? So the heretics, so Diodorus is labeled as, a, as someone who thinks that, that Jesus is two sons. So son of God and son of Mary as two separate distinct sons, and that this anticipates a Nestorian way of thinking, okay? So, so that would be something that needs to be denied. You know, impassable, okay? <laughs> Cyril of Alexandria held in divine impassibility, okay? Um, you know, he can talk about God's suffering in the flesh. In fact, if you don't profess that God, the word, suffered in the flesh, you're anathematized by him. But it's God, the word, suffering in the flesh because God, as St. Cyril of Alexandria affirms, does not suffer in his own nature, okay? But in our flesh, uh, or uh, denying mere human. Uh, so then you'd be a follower of Paul Samosato. Uh, or, you know, to have a, you need to have a, to profess faith in Jesus who has a body with a rational soul to be anti-Apollinarian. Okay, so just again and again, these little phrases that uh, are heard more frequently as you continue because these are things that, become the little, you know, like bells go off in terms of you need to say something to be able to affirm certain things and then to deny other things. The final one here that I've listed is refining common terms. 
a refining, a refinement of thinking about terms in social, philosophical, and religious discourses. So when the Greek fathers profess their faith in Jesus, they use all sorts of terms of person, hypothesis, nature, essence, union, relationship, properties, energy, will, love, knowledge, eternity, time, suffering, spirit, soul, body, the human being, God. All this surpasses previous reflection, but though influential, is often not identical to the interpretation of these terms many centuries later. Let's take the example of person, okay? So, Pasapon. It had originally had a sense, or one of the senses, of a mask in terms of drama, okay? So you can think about the dramatis personae in terms of a Latin phrase that is still used in theaters today, uh, the persons of the drama. Well, that gradually in the, in the Christological controversies, you get a, a better sense of prosopon in terms of the dignity of, of, of a rational subject, okay? So in terms of that prosopon, and, but today, not everybody would agree that that's what a person means. Okay, so this is where people can, uh, people may deny uh, certain human beings of personhood. Some people may uh, want to have non-rational animals as persons. The, the word person can be used in different ways by people. So that's where you need to be able to see that the Greek fathers had a refinement of their language to profess faith in Jesus, um, and it was a development, but that's not uh, necessarily what people have today. So in conclusion, and then we'll have some time for questions and answers, we can think back in terms of how Simon Peter was blessed uh, by the Heavenly Father to profess faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Greek fathers, who are ancient, holy, orthodox teaching and ecclesiastical approval, that they continue the apostolic faith. And by the grace of the Heavenly Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can too. Thank you. Thank you, Father Hoffer. That was certainly worth the wait. Um, just looking at the watch now, we've got about, well, we've got a fair amount of time for questions. I, oh no, that's when I started. We've got some time for questions. So um, if anybody has any questions, just raise your hand. And feel free to ask. I have a question. What's anyone else's? Um, I was just wondering if maybe you could talk a bit about. I know that um, for the Greek fathers, um, the baptism of Christ and the transfiguration are really key elements. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how we can use those to know Christ. That's right, great. So the baptism of Christ and the transfiguration are really key elements in the gospel. So the, the Trinity is revealed in the baptism and in the transfiguration. And that we come to know Jesus' identity because the Father reveals him. So you can think about how at the baptism, the Holy Spirit descends uh, in the form of a dove. 
and that Jesus is recognized by the Father as the beloved Son. So this is the beginning of the public ministry. And then the fathers of the church, particularly the Greek fathers, will have that special emphasis because of who Jesus is as revealed and then our identity. Remember, how do we become Christian? It's by our baptism. So that we then are united with Christ precisely in what we call the sacrament of baptism. Uh, one book that gives an overview of early baptismal theologies is by a Benedictine monk, Father Killian MacDonald. And I highly recommend his book on the baptism of the Lord, because then you can see how in the early church that there was this great celebration of the baptism. Uh, sometimes this would, be this would be taken up in professions of faith. And St. Ignatius of Antioch uh, speaks about how Jesus uh, in the baptism is not himself purified, but purifies the waters. And then St. Gregory of Nazianzus is one of those Greek fathers continuing this Ignatius of Antioch teaching that by Jesus being baptized, the waters are purified. Okay, so, you know, normally when you use water to purify someone, Jesus is the someone who purifies the waters. All right, so, so then to be able to see that precisely in terms of our lives with the gift of baptism. Liam also asked about the transfiguration. And the transfiguration is another prominent place of the revelation of the Holy Trinity in the gospel. And so, of course, then the fathers of the church will take this up and how notice that in the transfiguration, you have three apostles who are privileged, Peter, James, and John. They're taken up the high mountain, Mount Tabor, and then they're able to witness Jesus with Elijah, Moses and Elijah on, on either side. Right now, Origen, so it, this great uh, scriptural exegete in the third century, talks about how those three apostles were chosen because they are privileged and that they, then, they are able to go up the mountain through purification and to be able to, to behold Jesus for who he is in terms of that, his, that he lets his light of glory shine. Okay, his, he lets his light of glory shine. And how uh, we as Christians can be more and more purified to behold Jesus transfigured in glory. Okay, so uh, Father Brian Daly has a lovely collection of Greek homilies on the transfiguration from St. Vladimir's Press. So if you want to read uh, a lot of the Greek patristic and, and Byzantine tradition on the transfiguration, I, I very much encourage um, his book, I think it's called Light from the Mountain, something like that, Light from the Mountain. And, and then to be able to read with the Greek fathers uh, what Jesus is recorded to have experienced in the gospel. Okay, so thank you for that. Other questions or comments? Why do you think um, Professor Wolofsky was saying that the, um, the church fathers in the East were not scholastic? Yeah. And um, what are some of the benefits of saying that they are, are scholastic? Great, that's a wonderful question. So in the middle of the 20th century, I find that there is an alliance between the 
Orthodox emigres in the West, so those who came from the East and then came to, to France, to the United States, you know, Canada, different ways, uh, that there was an alliance between them and then in the Catholic Church, the Nouvelle Théologie. So the race were small people because they were both ganging up against Thomistic scholasticism. Okay, we're at the Thomistic Institute. And, and so that we then can see that uh, if you frame it as a polemic against everything scholastic, you would have an alliance against those who wanted to get away from, from Thomas and the scholastics uh, in terms of the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church doing this. Now, Marcus Plested, who teaches at Marquette University, has a lovely book, Orthodox Readings of Aquinas, where he shows that the Orthodox have a strong appreciation for St. Thomas in different times and different ways. And that was not heard in the 20th century because there was such a strong polemic against everything scholastic. And then people were not able to read how um, Maximus the Confessor, John of Damascus are, are in different ways very scholastic, okay? Now, certain people will disagree with me, but I can respond too in terms of that just if you, if you think of scholastic in a broad sense, if you just bracket out 13th century, 12th and 13th century universities and just, you know, what do we mean by the word scholastic? And that's why I'm taking an, an Indo-Tibetan Buddhist scholar. Yeah, this is what scholastic means more broadly. And is this what you find in the Greek fathers? I think so. Okay, so this is why it can be helpful then because um, we can be united against the enemies of error and sin and to, and to say, uh, to revisit certain controversies and why is it that these people are opposed to one another? What's really at stake? Okay, and so can we talk about the truths and get rid of certain polemics because to re-describe the battleground can be helpful to attaining more of what is true. So that's why I, uh, I favor this. And by the way, this argument then is not only for, say, uh, those who want an Eastern mystical tradition that has nothing to do with scholasticism. It also applies to Western scholastics who don't want to see the fathers as scholastic. Okay, because you also have those people who, don't, who just would not want the fathers of the church in any way to be called scholastic. And so it has a, a two-pronged approach. And, and I want people to, to revisit uh, something as basic as, uh, as scholastic, precisely in terms of our Christian faith and who Jesus is. Yes. You mentioned a, uh, an appreciation amongst the Eastern Orthodox at different times and places for the, uh, for the uh, for, I guess, uh, Thomistic writings of like St. Thomas Aquinas. Can you give me uh, some examples of that? Because in my mind, I'm more familiar with the, the Barlamite controversy. Yep. Right. And I know that's sort of like a, at least presented in modern day as tension between East and West. Right. And then if you read Marcus Plusted's Orthodox readings of Aquinas, he makes a strong argument that Thomas was favored by all sorts of Byzantine theologians and especially by Palamite theologians. Really? Yes. Wow. Okay, so Marcus Plusted, Orthodox Readings of Aquinas, Oxford University Press. Oh, yeah. 
Okay, so this is where uh, that sometimes people will say certain things and then they, they, uh, this will be locked in and then you find out, well, actually, Palamas in a way is a scholastic thinker. Okay, so, um, so, so to be able to let go of certain, what I would call facile descriptions and that if you just let go of certain prejudices and you read this and you think, okay, well, what does the word scholastic mean? If you take, you know, Buddhist a way of approaching scholarship in terms of, of just thinking about this more broadly about religions and philosophy, um, rather than having a, a Greek Latin debate. By the way, I started this with um, the calling to mind how the word Greek for Greek fathers means pagan, heathen. In the Middle Ages, you'll have uh, Westerners talking about the Latin uh, fathers and the Greek fathers, okay? Because they don't have a sense that the Greeks then would mean pagan. Um, but people today, you know, do we realize that, uh, that for these fathers of the church, they would not have wanted to be called Greeks. In Greek, they identified themselves if they were members of the empire, uh, what we call the Byzantine, but they are the Roman empire, they're the Romans, all right? So, um, so uh, they call themselves the Romans in Greek. And the Roman Empire then ended in 1453 with the fall of Constantinople, all right? But, so this is where, just in terms of, of, of the debate, uh, so we've been talking about the scholastic mystical debate. Well, just go in terms of Greek Latin. Greek Latin is, a, is a, especially a Western medieval way of framing the division, this, what is kind of, what turns out to be a schism between these two uh, predominant parts of Christianity. There are all sorts of other parts of Christianity, by the way. But how today then, people will still have a Latin Greek paradigm, but if you go back to the early church, they're not having this language of, you know, we're the Greek, we're the Greeks, no. No, of course, they're writing in Greek, um, writing in the same language as the New Testament. But when they read about the word Greek in the New Testament, that's a pagan. Okay, so, so this is where in terms of just being able to, um, to think um, in different ways can be very helpful uh, for, for um, having a new, a new search for the truth. Other comments or questions? Yes. Uh, do you think um, the Greek language is especially capable of describing the nature of Christ? And also, would you say that language can be a barrier to orthodoxy, especially when it's translated to other languages? Okay, great. So I follow Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, about the providential placement of the incarnation and of what and the cultures. So this is where, in terms of the Greek language, you think about how uh, the, what we call the Old Testament was translated into Greek before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the most uh, well-known translation is what we call the Septuagint. And then all the New Testament books uh, we have in Greek. Okay, so in terms of uh, the pro providential placement of Greek. And, and this is where, in terms of the paradigms, when St. Paul writes the people of Rome, because he wants to make sure that they understand what he's writing, what language does he write in? Greek. 
Greek. He writes to the Romans in Greek. Okay, Christian Latin, by the way, is born in North Africa. So the first Latin theologian is the North African Tertullian, writing around the year 200. The, probably the first Christian Latin document is from the Martyrs of Shili or Shilitum, uh, a little bit earlier than uh, Tertullian's writing or contemporaneous. Okay, so so this is where you're in terms of, uh, could you ask the question again? In the first part of that part. The Greek, in terms of the Greek, so just the Okay, so then in terms of Greek, because it's providential that, uh, that all the ecumen ancient ecumenical councils were held in what we call Turkey today. Okay, so in terms of Asia Minor, and so all of it's Greek. And so we just think, okay, the Holy Spirit knew what was happening and actually ordered these things wisely. And that we then appreciate how this was done in Greek. Okay, so that there's there's something special about that. Um, now, in terms of translation issues, well, during the time of the Greek fathers, you have the time of Syriac fathers, you have Latin fathers, you have all these different peoples translating, and oftentimes there'll be loan terms, whether in Syriac or in Latin, because they know it's something special in 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 Greek. Okay, so so you have the sense. That the because of the new because of the Bible and because of the councils because of the fathers of the church who were Greek that this is influencing uh, the Latin tradition the Syriac tradition and they go to all the other traditions in terms of Armenian Georgian uh, uh, Ethiopic uh, Arabic you know all the different traditions right now and then uh, I lived in Kenya for two years uh, one year after I was ordained a priest I was sent to Kenya and I taught at a place where when I taught the Trinity, there were 53 students and there were 11 different language groups. And so just in terms of thinking about Christ is one of the Trinity, and I'd have them broken down into their language groups for small group discussions. And it was fascinating then to be able to hear, uh, say from the Igbo people of Nigeria, how uh, they didn't have the word for person in their Igbo language, and rather than having a loan word, they chose a word that means mode. All right, so, so my Igbo students were telling me how in the Igbo language, the catechism borrowed uh, an, a, a native Igbo word, but they do not think it's adequate because they've studied theology and, and English and they uh, you know, knew the controversies of the early church. And they said, actually, that's, that's really inadequate. Okay, and then you think, oh, now, this is why, in terms of the early church, it took centuries, and there were all sorts of debates, and people of goodwill sometimes opposed each other, opposed each other. St. Jerome, if we could go to a Latin instance, St. Jerome asked, I think it was St. Damasus, uh, Bishop of Rome, about the different terms, because it's like, what terms should we use? Okay, Jerome, who knew Hebrew and Greek well, was like, okay, in Latin, what, what terms do we use? So, uh, uh, so this is where, in terms of just thinking about, there's something providential about the Greek culture and Greek language for salvation, actually, uh, because God, you know, you think about the words of the Bible, the New Testament in particular, um, uh, but there are difficult translation issues, and we should not gloss over that, because if we just think, oh, that's difficult, then you would have greater sympathy for what they're trying to do in the early church, and greater sympathy for what people are doing today.
in terms of whether it be, say, the church's mission lands, but even in terms of some place like Toronto, where, you, where people can go back to, you know, why do we say that Jesus is one person with two natures? You know, what does person mean for people today? What does the word nature mean today? And then keep in mind in terms of two natures, how Father Brian Daly says, and he's absolutely right, that you cannot use the same term univocally for God and creation. Okay, so in terms of the Greek word fusus, the, the Greek fathers came to appreciate more and more that Jesus, as one hypothesis, does have two fusis, so that he's from two fusis, in two fusis, and is two fusis, okay, to use a term that uh, becomes settled within the Greek patristic tradition. Maximus the Confessor repeats it. Uh, as an example, because some said that Jesus is from two natures, but not in two natures. So then it became combined. He is from two natures, in two natures, and he is two natures. Okay. So, uh, so you just think about the terms and how it took a long time uh, for this to be developed and our respect for it and the challenge of professing right faith in Jesus today in any language. I think we have time for one last question. Anybody have a question? So I submitted a book called The Word in Our Flesh, The Power of Patristic Preaching. Please say a prayer that will be published. So it's seven chapters, each on a father of the church, each on a particular virtue, that is for a church that hurts. Okay, so in terms of a church in crisis, a church that hurts, and, and the word in our flesh, the power of patristic preaching, it takes incarnation, uh, deification, and proclamation as the three stepping stones to it. So incarnation, deification, and proclamation. And uh, St. John Chrysostom says that you know, if you are sick, you can try a new medicine, you can go to a different climate, you can all these. But if the church is sick, there is one solution, preaching. So I want us to be able to go back to the preaching of the fathers of the church and to be inspired by their preaching, by their preaching and receive the healing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Father.